0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Lord, we we love your name. We love that you save, that you seek and save the lost. We love that you left your spirit here to keep doing your work until you return. And so this morning, because we love your name and because we know you left your spirit, we're we're coming asking for help. Help to know you, help to see you, help to trust you, help to savor you, and help to spread you. So Lord, come, be with me, help me be clear as we walk through these chapters quickly. Help our hearts be ready to be comforted and convicted, encouraged and exhorted. We need you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So coming off of our sermon from Acts 24 last week, Matt did a great job just unpacking for us this interaction with uh, Felix. I want you to do some imagining with me now, because when we left Paul in Acts 24, do you remember how long he'd been kind of rotten away in jail? How long? Two years, right? So he'd been there two years left. So here's what I want you to imagine. You've been there for two years. You've been thrown in jail by a high-ranking official explicitly because you believe in Jesus. That's why he's there. Jail is actually the only safe place for him away from the Jews. You made your case for your innocence. It was clear. Matt showed all the ways that he he made it clear that he was innocent. You avoided a death sentence, but now you've been sitting in jail for two years years. Where would your heart be? What would you be thinking about? How would you be feeling about your situation? Now imagine the ruler who threw you in jail is succeeded by another ruler and he brings his friend to help him kind of hear your case. So you might think, oh that sounds hopeful. New ruler, new friend, going to hear my case again. But then imagine hearing that the friend that he brings in to help him hear your case is the great-grandson of a king that had all the baby boys killed because of Jesus. Imagine that the friend that he brings in is the great-nephew of the king that put Jesus on trial. Imagine that the friend he brings in is the son of a king that killed the apostle James and put Peter in prison. Now what's your heart doing? Right? Not as exciting anymore. What would you do? What would your heart be? How I want to start is I want you to hear Paul's heart here. And it's a heart that's saved and transformed by grace. This friend, the king in a long line of haters and persecutors of all things Jesus, from the time he was a baby until now, asks Paul at the end of chapter 26, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, Paul, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Didn't you need to convince me? Do you know who I am? You think you can convince me to be a Christian? Is that really your goal right now when you're on trial to convince me to be a Christian? And it would be easy to understand, right? It'd be easy to understand if Paul simply defied this king and had a hard heart towards him. I just said something like, well, God will condemn you also. That'd be easy to understand. It would also be easy to understand if Paul changed course and backed off a little bit. No, 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 I'm trying to provide you my case for innocence. This king could influence his fate, but what does Paul say? Verse 29 of Acts 26. Paul says, well, whether short or long, no matter how long I have with you, King, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Well, except for these chains. Don't need you all locked up with me, but in every other way, I want you to be a Christian. So Paul's answer is, yes. Yes, I'm trying to convince you. Of course I'm trying to convince you. You know who I am. I'm trying to convince everyone. And why is he doing that? Because he lived a life apart from Jesus. Now he knows him. Paul knows he's real. Paul knows he's alive. That his resurrection had brought him eternal life. That he's coming back to judge the world. That he's been saved by grace. Therefore, Paul is giving his life to telling as many as possible that they might be saved by grace, that they might be spared from eternal judgment and come into eternal life. Paul knows that kingship and governorship is nothing in light of eternity. So, yes, king, I'm telling you, because you need to meet the real king. Yes, governor, I'm telling you, because you need to meet the one who owns all things. He's praying that they might be set free from lives of running after prestige and power and trying to earn salvation just like he was doing. And might come into a life of obedience to King Jesus. Because he's saves by grace alone. And he's the one that deserves all prestige because he's the one that has all power. That's the point. Paul's saying yes. Actually, I am trying to convince you. Thank you for acknowledging that. And as we see these chapters unfold, what we see is a man that has been changed by grace And is willing to speak the name of Jesus to anyone. In other words, Paul's goal is not, let me get to the top. I want to be important. I want a big audience with the king. Paul says, I've been saying this to small and great. I'll say it wherever I am. Say it to the governor, to the king. And I'll say it to the slave girl. He's met Jesus. The man who laid down his life for his enemies. And he now gladly receives his appointment from God to go from one city to the next From one suffering to the next, that others might meet this risen Christ and find life and forgiveness of sins with him. So let's look at this as we go through these two chapters. Point number one is a whole chapter, persecutors, rulers, and an appeal. So last week, Matt unpacked Paul's encounter with Felix in chapter 24. By the way, these rulers have the best names, don't they? This Felix and Festus and Agrippa. What great names. And if you read some history here, and if you read about Felix, uh, he wasn't so good at his job. So he's succeeded by a guy named Festus. And just a few days after being on the job, Festus gets introduced to the Paul controversy. You can imagine it was one of the things he knew was there when he was coming into office and knew I'll probably have to deal with it. But just a few days after, he gets introduced. He's in Jerusalem, and the chief priests and the Jews make their case against Paul. Nothing new here, same story, different ruler. And they say, hey, we have an idea. What if you bring him back to Jerusalem? Why? Because they want to lay an ambush to kill him. Right? We've seen this before. It's just same schemes, different ruler. So you think, man, it'd be enough that Paul is stuck in jail. What, What harm can he do to us? But these guys know Paul's gospel is dangerous. It's dangerous to all the power they hold, all the prestige they hold. It's dangerous to their prestige, their authority, because he's saying there's another king. He's saying they don't understand the law. He's saying they don't understand the true hope of the resurrection. He's dangerous as long as he's alive, even if he's buried in a hole. These Jews want him dead. But God wants him to go to Rome. And God wins time after time in the book of Acts. So Festus says, Well, if you want to make your case, you can actually show up to court this time in Caesarea in a few days. And I'm sure this was disappointing. They just wanted him dead. And trials with Paul never seemed to go very well when they got together with him. I can just imagine their conversation. Who's going this time? Right, last time we hired Tertullus, the best lawyer, and he couldn't get it done. Who's going this time? What are the chances? And kids, this is important, and we keep saying this to you as we walk through the book of Acts. People may not like you if you love Jesus. It won't make sense to them. They might not like what you say or what you do, but God will be with you. Right, throughout this book of Acts, the very beginning, Jesus says, listen, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit I'm going to make you my witnesses. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. And throughout the book of Acts, the one thing that never changes is the presence of King Jesus with His people. He is always with them. He is always for them. He's always sovereignly ordaining every moment of their lives. And He will be with you. And kids, if a million people are against you, they are not as strong as Jesus. A million are not as strong as Jesus. So they end up In Caesarea, in verse 7, and surprise, surprise, they're bringing many and serious charges against him that they cannot prove. Right? Just over and over again. I mean, it's almost ridiculous. There's a lot of charges, they're really serious. Can you prove them? Well, no. Right? And over and over again it goes. So Paul makes his case, stating again, listen, I, I haven't broken the Jewish law, I've proven that. I haven't defiled the temple. I've proven that there's witnesses that can show you that. I haven't broken any Roman laws. In fact, the only people that have broken Roman laws are the the Romans. As they've persecuted me and almost beat me and almost killed me. I'm innocent here. And this is the theme over and over again. He's innocent. Paul is joining Jesus in false trials and false accusations and constant persecution that only confirms over and over and over again. He's innocent. Well, in verses 8 to 12, Festus still wants to do the Jews a favor. He's the new kid on the block, and he's trying to figure out how to make this thing work. And so he says to Paul, well, what if you go back and you're just tried by kind of your own people in Jerusalem? And Paul's going, that is not going to go well. (laughs) I know what they're up to. My nephew, a few weeks ago, a few years ago at this point, told me that they're going to kill me in an ambush on the way to Jerusalem. I'm not doing that. And so he says... Listen, if I'm guilty, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not trying to avoid death here. I'm not trying to avoid a just punishment. I'll take a just punishment. But if not, and if I've really proven what I've proven, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. And now Festus knows he's serious. <laughs> right, Paul's just going, okay, I can see you're not going to listen, so I'm just going to go above you. I'm going to go above your head here. This appeal would send him toward Rome and away from the plots of the Jews. It was an appeal that any Roman citizen could make that didn't think they were getting getting a fair shake in the lower courts. they say, listen, we live in Rome. We're supposed to be this free country. We're supposed to get a a fair trial. So I'm using that right and I'm appealing all the way to the top. It's really, at this point, an appeal for his life. Because he knows what comes if he doesn't Go to Caesar. He goes back to the Jews and they're going to kill him. And Festus grants his request. So then we get to the second half of chapter 25, verses 13 to 27. And it's really the story of the confusion of Festus. The arrival of Agrippa and the hope of the resurrection. So some days go by. Paul's waiting on this appeal. And Agrippa, the king from the line of those that hate all things Jesus, shows up. Festus fills him in on Paul's case, how much the Jews want him condemned, and how he had not seen, again, this is the innocence theme, he had not seen any of these evils in Paul. Here's what Festus says the core issue is. So what is Festus listening, what is he hearing from Paul? Verse verse 18, I think. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul said was alive the resurrection of King Jesus who is still working and teaching by his empowering spirit in his people is the heart of the issue Matt said this last week the resurrection does not get Paul in good situations as he continues to say Jesus is alive Jesus is alive The heart of the issue is that they're going, no, we need him dead. We need you to stop telling everyone he's alive. Why is that? Why is that the heart of the issue? Well, it's the heart of the issue because if Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Right? It changes history. It changes the fulfillment of the law for the Jews. It changes where they put their hope. It changes how they live their day-to-day lives. It changes how we view suffering and death and disappointment. It changes how we spend our time and money. But if he's dead, we might as well just squeeze as much sinful pleasure out of life now. Because tomorrow we die. Might as well fight for our prestige now and our power now. Because tomorrow we die. And that's the world we live in. It's the same world. Right? Instant gratification is the highest ideal. Not so much changes. Express yourself. Right? You be you. You get yours. Live your truth. But all of that has to die if Jesus is alive. All of that has to die if Jesus is alive. So, Paul has stated his case Festus has said I think it's around this resurrection idea that's upsetting everyone and then Festus just admits that he has no idea how to investigate if a dead guy is alive (laughs) I don't I don't know and he says I have to write something to the higher-ups in Rome like I can't just say he's coming Caesar I don't know why And so he goes, I don't know how to investigate if a dead guy's alive. And so he says, Agrippa, I'd like your help. And so Agrippa agrees to talk with Paul face to face. And the next day, Agrippa and Bernice put on the full display of their power and prestige with great pomp and get ready to meet with Paul. Next point, Paul's past, Paul's redemption, and an appointment from God. So as we move to chapter 26... Paul will make his defense before Agrippa. Agrippa says, go ahead and speak. Paul is always respecting his authorities, and he, says, he waits, and he gets permission, and he starts by recognizing that Agrippa is well acquainted with the customs and controversies of the Jews. So apparently these Jews had kind of a track record for, like, you know these guys. They're always stirring up trouble. You know their customs. You know how they work. And then he talks about his past before meeting Jesus to this king who is well acquainted with the way of the Jews. In verses 4-8, to Paul tells Agrippa that since he was young, all he has done is try to live by the strictest, most zealous group of Jews as a Pharisee. He's going, I wasn't playing in the minor leagues. I'm not the one that would be unsure of what the rules are. I'm not the one that would be unsure of what we're supposed to do. I was in the major leagues. I was the MVP. I was the up-and-comer. I knew it all. I was better than them at all these things. And he's on trial because of his hope in the resurrection, which he argues is the whole hope of all Jews and why they worship God day and night. He says, this is why they worship. Because they want to be resurrected. They want to spend eternity with him. And somehow that's why I'm on trial. You see the case he's making. He's saying, I'm a strict Pharisee. I've been all in my whole life. My entire hope is that we will rise from the dead because of the Old Testament promises that in His presence is fullness of joy and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. And yet they're mad at me that I say a man rose from the dead so that they could too? Doesn't make any sense. He's saying, you think I'm crazy? Try living out their version of Jewishness. So part one of his past is he's proving I'm a zealous Pharisee living life consistent with the very beliefs they say they live. I lived like them and I'm believing even now what they say they believe. They just can't see. And part two of his past. He talks about his zealousness in verses 9 to 11 that led him to oppose the name of Jesus. In other words, I wasn't just a Pharisee that knew a lot of stuff. I was always living it out. I had raging fury, and I received authority from the chief priest to persecute Christians, to lock them away, to try to make them blaspheme, and I voted for their death. He's saying, I was just like these men who are now trying to persecute me, lock me up, and get my death. I get it. I was one of them. Don't you see that I understand? Don't you see that you've got the wrong guy on trial here? And then he's gonna tell Agrippa what changed. Here's who I was, and then something changed. Part three of his past is his redemption. We've heard this story now. This is the third time Paul's unpacked the story. Jesus shows up on the road to persecute others and shines the light of his glory into Paul's blindness and darkness literally knocks him down knocks him off his path of death and places him on the path of eternal life Jesus says I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting it's hard for you to kick against the goads in other words don't fight me you can't win come and find rest for your soul stop your weary relentless fight against me and find rest and relentless joy in me won't you surrender your life Paul We all have a past before Jesus, whether it was 80 years or five years. We all have a past before Jesus, and we all have a moment where King Jesus intrudes and kindly calls us to himself. So maybe you're here this morning, and you've been running relentlessly towards prestige and power and money and comfort, or whatever else these south suburbs have to offer you. You're looking for popularity or friends or maybe your spouse or your job to bring you rest and joy. if I just get that promotion or if my marriage could just get to this place or my spouse could just do this or my kids just acted like this or if I just had this much more money or this whatever. But they won't bring you satisfaction and joy. Not ultimate satisfaction and joy. They can't. Paul had it all. Paul had it all. Power, prestige, lots of money that came with that. All sorts of popularity and up and comer in every way. And Jesus is saying, none of those things will bring you what you're looking for, but I can. And if you've been there, it would be gracious this morning if Jesus would intrude and have you see the folly, just the foolishness of seeking anything ultimate in those things, but rather see the risen Christ. The risen Christ. an eternity with Him as ultimate and begin to live in light of those things. In light of eternity, it would be gracious if the Lord would break in. Whether you've never trusted in Jesus, and this is the moment He's saying, you're mine. Or you've trusted in Him for 50 years and you've still been running after those things and just need To submit, to repent. Finally, Paul tells of his present appointment. Listen to verse 16. God in Christ says, Rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me. Jesus doesn't just intrude to save. He intrudes to save and then send. (laughs) To save and then send. If you're here today and you're just like, man, I'm such a mess. I'm so broken. I trust Jesus, but I've just, you don't know my past. You don't know my present. You don't know the brokenness. What I'm saying is, submit to Christ and then go tell people about Him. In all your brokenness, in all your messiness, you don't have to wait to be a witness for Jesus until you have it all pulled together. Jesus says in this moment, I'm saving you to send you. I'm saving you to send you. And you're going to need my protection because you've kind of got a reputation. Right? You've been murdering these people. You've been destroying these people. You've been throwing these people in prison. And so they're not going to trust you. You're going to need my help. And then the Jews, they're really going to hate you. They're really going to be against you and you're going to need my protection from them too. Jesus doesn't just intrude to save. He intrudes to save and then send. And if you're here today and trusting Jesus by His grace, then you are meant to be an ambassador of that grace. If you're here today and you've seen the risen Christ by the grace of God, if you're trusting the God-man that died for your sins and is now alive so that you'll know Him and live with Him forever, then you're meant to speak His name. It doesn't happen if it's not you. Right? Your neighbors are not going to get saved by fairy dust. It is not. You are where you are. Saved by grace. Pure grace. Not because of anything you ever did. Because somewhere you heard of Jesus. Someone spoke his name and for whatever reason, probably reasons you can't understand in the sovereign mystery of saving grace, you heard the name of Jesus and you said, yes, (laughs) he is what I've been looking for. He's what I've been waiting for. That's the rest I've been looking for. That's the hope I've been looking for. That's the joy I've been looking for. That's the life that's real that I've been looking for. You neighbors need to hear that same way that you heard. Point number three, protection, repentance, and an appeal. Well, we're sent by King Jesus. We are eternally safe in him, but also physically by his power until he's done with us. (laughs) No one can do anything to you until God's done with you. God appointed Paul to go and speak his name, and in verse 17 he tells him, I'll deliver you from the Jews and the Gentiles so you can keep speaking my name. In other words, you are invincible until God is done with you. You're not safer, right, sitting in your air conditioned home, sipping on your iced tea in the suburbs, than you are in some foreign country with a bunch of people who hate you. Not in God's providence, you're not. That's safer. Right, God controls it all. It controls every heartbeat and every breath. He controls where everyone is all the time. You're not safer. God says, you're going to keep speaking my name until you're done. You're going to go to Rome. And you're invincible until God is done with you. Kids, nothing can happen that is out of God's control. Nothing. If you trust Jesus, you will live forever with him. You live forever with him. And you are always as safe as you could possibly be in this life because he's powerful and will protect you until the day you're with him forever. Forever. You will never die if you trust Jesus. You will always be protected. And as Paul is sent and he speaks, God promises miracles of eternal life are going to happen. This just wouldn't this be motivating? Hey, go speak. Well, what's going to happen? Verse eighteen, he says, "To open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith alone." That's awesome. Would you sign up for that? It's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of suffering. But this is going to happen. Verse 18 is going to happen. Can we pause for a moment to lament the state of those that don't know Jesus from these verses? What's their state? <laughs> Condemned in their sins. Without a place in eternal joy. Under the power of Satan to be tricked into running after everything besides Jesus, completely in the dark about the reality of true life and blind to be able to change any of it. That's the state of your lost neighbor. Yeah, they drive too fast. Right? They do that annoying thing. They they frustrate you. We're all annoying, so don't think you're better than your neighbor. But this is their eternal state. Right? Can we pause for a moment to weep over the people we know that don't know Jesus? Can we step away from our angst and our frustration at how bad they are out there for a moment and just lament? I mean, I'm convinced that what the church needs more than ever is just a category, reclaim the category of Lament. You want to get out all that frustration? Do it. Lament to God. Pour out your heart before Him. Let Him know you hate the brokenness that you see. Let Him know you you weep for the sinners that will try to persecute you and get you. Don't go to social media first. I'm not kidding. Social media is fine. Whatever. Do what you want in there. But go to God first. Lament. Pour out your heart before Him. Pour out your heart for your neighbors that are lost. Pour out your heart for the the neighbor kids that are in your yard that don't know Jesus. Pour out your heart for your coworker that's immoral, but he's lost. Can we take a moment to get an eternal perspective of the souls that pass right in front of our eyes without any hope? Might a pause like this, away from the angst and the frustration, instead of internal perspective of their souls, might a pause cause us to pray? by name for our neighbors. Might the prayer that we pray cause us to be intentional to know our neighbors? Might that intentionality lead us to listen and love our neighbors? Might that listening and loving lead to opportunities to speak to our neighbors? And might our speaking lead to the opening of their eyes, the turning from darkness to light, the, the delivering from the power of Satan, the receiving of forgiveness of sins in a place for them among all who are sanctified by faith alone? oh my goodness, can like you get excited about being a Christian? About this, about this, this mission, this, this passion, this appointment. And by God's grace, when we do this, when we speak the name of Jesus, sometimes they see. Right? Sometimes they come into the light of Christ. They're rescued from Satan and seated at the table of Jesus. They're forgiven from their sinful rejection of Christ and become sons and daughters of God. They have a place forever with Jesus and with us in his presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Like, oh my goodness. Have you ever been there when someone received Jesus? Man, you will talk about him a lot more, at least for a couple weeks until you get all burnt out again. There's nothing more thrilling than speaking the name of Jesus and seeing the Holy Spirit just come. <laughs> there is a moment. i oh, will just share the story quick. Where we were, uh as in Albert Lee was with one of my elders uh, as his dad was passing away. His dad was a long-time Catholic. And I said to this elder, I said, hey, can I just come? And we're just going to take a run at him. <laughs> right? We're just going to take him. I'm like, no holds barred. There's a couple days left. We're just going for it. And we were there for the first 45 minutes, just nurses in and out all the time doing a good job, doing what they're supposed to do. And we're just going, man, we can't even talk because there's just too much stuff. And all of a sudden, the nurses are gone. And we get into this conversation and the nurses didn't come back for an hour and a half, right? So they were being neglectful and God was opening a door. And what was going on in that moment, what's going on in that moment is his his dad just unpacking his fear. I know there's a God. What do you think about him? I just think I want to hide. I just want to hide. And so we used... Every, right? Everything you know how to use, right? We use bridge diagrams. We use, like, all the, like, the law of gospel. We're using everything, right? We're just like tools, tools, poof, 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 whatever we can <laughs> to try to share the gospel. And I finally looked at him, right? It's like a last ditch. My elder brother is just torn up about it. And I said, and, he, and his dad says something about some kind of food he likes at a restaurant. And I said, don't you want Jesus to pay your tab? <laughs> don't you just want, don't you just want, just eat and drink for free. Don't you want that? And his dad, who's barely been breathing, sits up in his hospital bed, like pulls himself up and looks at me and smiles. He goes, yes. So, yes, <laughs> <laughs> you, you do. And then we unpack it and he spent the last 15 days of his life just evangelizing his family. So at his funeral, they're all like, well, we know it's coming, right? We know what Dave's going to say. This is the guy who made Dad crazy for the last 15 days. But that's what God does. Man, there's so many times we speak his name and we feel like we're hitting a wall. But once in a while when we speak his name, this happens. God does this. I don't know where I was here. Um, Verse 23, what is the main Message that Paul is always preaching. The Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And Paul's point is this is what Moses has always been saying. This is what the prophets have always been saying. You can go read Isaiah 49. You can read Isaiah 53. You can read Psalm 16 to see echoes of this message of the Messiah that would suffer, rise from the dead and be a light to the whole world. It's all over the Old Testament, and the Jews had missed it. Paul had missed it until the Messiah intruded, and now Paul's whole life was longing that other people would see Jesus with him. This is our hope. This is our hope. Jesus came. (laughs) Why he came? I don't know why he came for someone like me, but he came. He came for my joy and God's glory, and he lived the life I could never live. He suffered and died for my sins. He rose again to give me eternal life. And this is what we celebrate. This is why all our songs are about the gospel. Because what else do we have to celebrate? This is what we're banking on. This is what we have seen and loved. And if it's true, it changes everything. It makes us ambassadors. It frees us to true life. It causes us to want to bow our lives to Him. And of course we want other people to see Him and love Him and be saved. His self-giving love creates self-giving love in us by the Holy Spirit. And then that same Spirit that creates the love empowers our lives to go and make Him known in word and deed. And as we do that, some people will say, yeah, I want Jesus. I want Him to pay my tab. Others, they might think we're crazy. Uh, Festus says to Paul, Paul You are out of your mind. Paul points out that all these things have not been done in a corner. Why does he say that? He's saying this is all in the open. This whole Christianity thing hasn't been hidden in a corner. We're not some little private sector cult like you're saying we are. It's all out in the open. You can see it. Go read about Jesus. Go read about him. Read about what I've done. Read my story. Read the story of Peter and James. It's all been very public and very open. He asked Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, you know... And then Paul talks to Agrippa directly and asks him if he believes the prophets. And he says, I know you do. I know you believe the prophets. And this brings us all the way back to the beginning of the sermon where Agrippa asks Paul if you try to make him a Christian. And I'm just arguing that the answer of every believer in every situation for all of time to this question should be what Paul says here. I would to God that not only you but also, all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Have you met the risen Christ? Have you met Him? Have you been forgiven your sins? Can you see the reality of sin and salvation and judgment and eternal joy? Do you feel yourself sent? Do you have this heart that others might hear and repent? and live in light of the eternal hope of the resurrection? Has the resurrection changed how you view everything in this life? Do you want others to be set free? Do you want your neighbors to be set free, your coworkers to be set free, to, to have this story be their story, to have this eternal life be their eternal life? Let's take a few minutes and pray together a little bit. You bow your heads. So first, just ask the Lord to remind you in this moment of how deep and wide is the gift of resurrection life in Jesus. Would you just take a minute or two to celebrate that you were dead and now you're alive forever? And now just have you take a moment to talk to him about areas where you've begun to trust other things are better than him, that there are other things that you need more than him, and where you've begun to run after other things for your ultimate joy and hope and salvation outside of Christ. Just now is the moment to just lay it down at his feet and repent and walk with him more closely again. So would you just take a moment and bring those things to his feet? And now I want you to bring the names of some neighbors, some coworkers, some family members that you know need to know Jesus. Bring them before the throne of grace right now. Ask Him for His sovereign hand in their lives. Ask Him for opportunities to love them and listen to them and share with them. Ask Him to grow your heart for those who don't yet know Jesus. So, Lord, we come now to you knowing we live in a broken world, in a world where it's very easy to groan as we see the brokenness and the sin and the suffering all around us. And yet we come knowing that you've made us your ambassadors of light, to shine light into the darkness, to bring hope to suffering, to call people from death to life because of the name of Jesus. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would help us to live with that hope, that we would live with resurrection hope, that resurrection hope would change our lives, help us live in light of eternity, and that that would overflow with great love and hope and expectation to our neighbors that are around us. Lord, would you fill the empty seats in this place? with our neighbors because we've talked to them and you've done the miracle of new life. Lord, what a privilege it is to be saved. What a privilege it is to be sent. Lord, what a privilege it would be to see many come to know Jesus as we speak this simple message. Lord, we pray that you do more than we ask or even think in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.